Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, team. That was great. Love those old songs. Uh, just before I bring the message, amen. <laughs> amen. Before I bring the message, I want to add uh, my, a word to what Zach said earlier, in case some of you were not here, uh, about the 7th of September, Wednesday. In addition to our normal Wednesday prayer time, uh, Jonathan, who heads up the ministry of intergenerational ministry in the church, uh, is going to start something every Wednesday beginning September 7, and uh, to bring the veterans, I don't want to call them old because <laughs> they get offended, but the veteran with together with the younger generation. So anyone 22 to 55 is considered to be younger generation. And he and Zach roped me in to do the first session. They found the oldest guy. And uh, they asked me specifically if I teach uh, what Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Well, I thought, well, I'll do better than that. I will bring the teaching that I did from location where Jesus asked the disciple that question in Caesarea and play it, and then I'll be there to answer questions. So please come. There will be tables and table discussion afterward. It will be a, a great opportunity for the next several weeks for the intergenerational ministry to flourish on a Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Somehow, just about in every generation, at least in the West anyway, but also globally, that, each just that generation tend to flirt what was known now as socialism or social justice. You've heard it in a variety of ways. But in the 2020s, it has become a full-blast love affair with the so-called social justice. Today, a large percentage of college students think that socialism is wonderful. I guarantee you they don't know what it is. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of those kind of uh, men on the street, they went out and asked you, what is socialism? I don't know. What is socialism? Well, you get free stuff. Well, that's really what they think socialism is. Well, meanwhile, daddy or the taxpayers paying for the expensive fees in college education. In most cases, in most cases, not in all cases, I think in America, probably all cases, they've never experienced socialism. The reason they don't know what it is, they've never experienced it. Uh, they even find it hard to visualize it. As I said, they just think it's free stuff. However, I hope you're listening. I lived it. I lived in it. I've experienced it and its evil firsthand. I experienced the pain of authoritarian socialism firsthand. 
I have escaped it, literally with the clothes on my back, to come to the land of the free. Make no mistake about it, socialism and authoritarianism and the loss of freedom go hand in hand. Absolutely go hand in hand. They are inseparable. Today in the 2020s, uh, we have so-called social justice movements, variety of them, in the West, in England, and I've seen it in Australia and England. It's, it's, it's now just about the, the, the trend everywhere. And those of us who know the lingo <laughs> know that it is one of the biggest fallacy and lie that Satan has ever inflicted on humanity. Because in its pure sense, it is Marxism. What is even more perverse <laughs> about this type of thinking is that they have divided the world now into two segments. The victims, or the privileged, uh, the, the, sorry, the privileged and the non-privileged, depending on your skin color. I don't know where I foot in because I'm kind of in between. <laughs> but let me tell you something, okay? You, you, those of you who are members here, those who have been hearing me for a long time, you will understand. As an immigrant to this country, as an immigrant to this country, if you live in America, you are privileged. Every one of you. Wake up and smell the roses. Tragically, we have some churches that have adopted this lie and given it legitimacy, legitimacy. And we have seen several members of so-called social justice movement extorting money from corporations, weak knee CEOs and corporations who don't want to be called names, so they hand them millions of dollars. Some of them bought $6.5 million homes in California. One million dollar a year consultation fees for some people who have no expertise whatsoever. <laughs> Sadly, so many people, the vast majority of Americans, are burying their heads in the sand. Some, even out of ignorance or distortion or both, they have tried to portray Jesus as a socialist. I've heard it many times. The truth is, Jesus is neither a socialist nor a capitalist. Jesus is God of very God who became man. He owns it all. And yet in all of his parable, Jesus commends hard work, productivity, investing wisely, while condemning unjust gain. Now, most of Jesus' parables are about free market economy. Why? so that we can make spiritual and eternal impact. America, ever since its inception, adopted what is known as Protestant work ethic. Now, most of you would know, but for those of you who don't know what Protestant work ethic is, <laughs> I'm going to tell you. It is the valuing of hard work, self-discipline, frugality, all of which are affirmed in the Word of God. That's where they got it from. It is absolutely proper to do all of the above. 
Why? To provide for our families, but also to provide for those who are genuinely and truly poor and needy. For the last 35 years in this church, they have supported many ministries that are dedicated, dedicated to helping the truly need, needy, the truly needy. In fact, this last July, my wife and I, and we were talking about that yesterday, we were talking to a shopkeeper, and he was exercised. I mean, he almost on a fervor of a preaching. He's an immigrant from North Africa working in a shop in, in, in London. And he was complaining bitterly, people bigger than me, stronger than me, don't work because they get a check from the government. And he was saying, I get up early, I work hard. See, this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. And that's not just my opinion. It's the Word of God. I'm going to show it to you in a minute. <laughs> But while I'm at the, on the subject of socialism, if you're listening to me, say amen. amen. Socialism is unbiblical, unchristian, and unworkable. Amen. Socialism destroys incentive, destroys the economy, and destroys human dignity. The first 18 years of my life, as I mentioned, I heard another word, social justice, social justice, social justice, those in power, social justice. In reality, those in power who are talking about social justice took the money from people and corporations who worked hard. They took it. They didn't give it to the poor. They gave it to themselves, and they became the ruling elite. Trust me, that's how it works everywhere. And freedom had gone forever. Somebody was asking me last night, and you know, how come? I said, literally, I escaped because there was no freedom. You were afraid to speak anywhere lest the government informant is listening. That's how socialism goes with authoritarianism. You'll find that this is the case every time. In every country, you can check me on this, and if I did not tell you, you can, you can, you can literally uh, stand up and object if you want to, but I've got the facts on my side. <laughs> because you're going to find everywhere where the so-called just, social justice governments had overthrown the market uh, economies, everywhere you find there's a loss of freedom. Well, now or by now, at least I know some of you. Not all of you, I know some of you, because I can see the way you're thinking. <laughs> saying, Michael, did we come to church to hear a sermon on politics? I have never, ever, in all of my years of preaching, preached party politics. Never, not once. Biblical truth, yes. Biblical truth, yes. And beloved, biblical truth impacts every area of life, from Sunday worship to Monday work, from piety to politics. 
There is no area in life that is not impacted by the truth of the Word of God. I want to show you how, in this Bible passage for today, here the Apostle Paul actually goes on as far as to say (laughs) that there are limits to what commonly referred to as compassion or charity. He said, those who are able to work can work, but refuse to work should not be cuddled or enabled. They should not even be fed. They should be ostracized. Now, turn with me, please, to 2 Thessalonians. And those of you who are visiting, this is the last in a series of four messages from the letter of Paul, second letter to the Thessalonians. This is the fourth in the series, the last in the series. And this is chapter 3, verses 6 to 18. And if you grab the Pew Bible, if you don't have your own, page 1844, 1844. Page 1844, go ahead and grab it uh, in case anybody thinks that I'm making this stuff up, okay? (laughs) Check me on the Word of God here. You got it? (laughs) Okay. Watch this, because it's very important, beginning at verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not Paul speaking, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who's idle and does not live according to the teaching you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We, are, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, labored and toiled, so that we would not be a burden on any one of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. But even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If any man will not work, he should not eat. I think this motto should be on every building in Washington, D.C. Yeah. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. He's taking taking names. Do not be associated with him in order that he may be ashamed. Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace in all times and in every way. The Lord be with you. 
I, Paul. Now remember, I told you the false teachers were circulating letters, forgeries, and they're saying they're from Paul with false teaching. So he makes sure that they understand this. So here's the last verse. He says, I, Paul, write these greetings in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This now I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. I was aware all week, and I think you already guessed this, this is not the most popular message <laughs> in our basket case culture. It's a basket case. But I have never, when I put my hand on the Bible 50 years ago, this coming, no, actually, uh, I, I was preaching before I was ordained, so it was been 40 uh, 80, 48 years ago, and I said that I will preach the whole counsel of God. I do not shrink from the hard passages and the difficult passages. I don't care who gets offended. I pray to God no one will be offended, but everybody be encouraged and be elevated to realize the adequacy of the Word of God in every area of life. Now, you know and I know there are many people who view work as a necessary evil, uh, just generally speaking. They just think work is just a necessary evil. In, it's like uh, some years ago I saw a bumper sticker that says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Well, that's just not correct. But even there are Christians, there are some Christian believers who mistakenly believe that work is a curse that is associated with Adam's sin and fall into sin. But if they really understand the Scripture, if they look at Genesis chapter 2 very carefully, they will discover that it is not so. In Genesis 2.15, before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned, here's what God said, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work and take care of it. Before Adam's sin, before the fall, Adam was working in the garden, and that work was honorable. That work was healthy. That work was pleasurable. It was only after Adam and Eve have sinned that there were some changes in the environment of work, not the work itself, uh, but in the nature of the earth itself. Changes have taken place after sin. Changes in the weather, changes in crop failures, a changing of this whole environment change that took place after sin. But not the essence of work, not the very purpose for work. God created us to work. I'm going to show you that work makes us one of the things that makes us truly created in God's own image. Listen to me. Work is never a curse, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. I'm personally convinced that the believers in heaven, they're not going to be sitting on clouds uh, harping on something, but <laughs> they'll be working in heaven. Here's a historical fact. When the Christian faith burst into the scene in the pagan Roman Empire, uh, Christ Christians elevated the status of honest work 
of hard work. That was not known in pagan Rome. The Greek or Roman uh, culture viewed physical labor as beneath their dignity. Uh, and so what they did, they, they imported the Roman uh, emperor, um, empire, uh, uh, imported two million slaves. They did everything. And when we talk about slaves in the Bible, the, the teachers, doctors, they imported everybody. By contrast, the Bible from cover to cover teaches hard work. Hard work, productivity, investments, ownership, job creation, honest profit and prosperity are all honorable and consistent with the righteousness of God. But there's even more. When we work, we imitate God. We imitate God and bring glory to Him. God, the Bible said, worked for six days and then rested on the seventh day. Question, why does our imitation of God bring Him glory? I'm going to tell you, because when we are industrious, creative, productive, we reflect the character of God in our lives. Amen? Conversely, those who are able to work can work, but refuse to work. They are not only dishonoring themselves, but they're dishonoring their Creator. And that is why those who support so-called social justice movement or redistribution of wealth are not biblical Christians. I hope you heard me. They are not biblical. I don't care how many times they shout and scream that they're Christians. They are not biblical Christians. It doesn't matter how many times they claim that Jesus is a socialist or was a socialist. It makes no difference. They are not biblical Christians. And it doesn't matter how many uh, times they go and get the, 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 the cross on their forehead on Ash Wednesday, and they run for the camera to show them how religious they are. They're not biblical Christians. The folks who want to tax work and productivity while subsidizing indolence and dependence are not biblical Christians. In fact, in our passage here, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we see this very, very clear. Verse 6, in the name of Jesus Christ, we command you, what? To keep away from every brother, that's believer, obviously a brother is a believer, who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. See, Paul is invoking no less than the authority of Jesus Christ himself. There are times in the Corinthian letter, for example, we said, I say, not the Lord. He was very careful when it's not inspired of the Holy Spirit and is giving a personal counsel or, or wise counsel from, from him. Here, he is invoking the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, here's a simple principle that you should always remember, okay? I wish you could write it down on your iPad, iPhone, or tablet, or whatever you got in with you. Just write it down. What you tax, you get less of. You got that? 
What you tax, you get less of. What you subsidize, you get more of. Very simple, right? Simple? Do I need to explanify it more? I will. <laughs> when you tax work and productivity and punish work and productivity, you get less work and productivities. And when you subsidize laziness, dependence, you get more laziness and dependence. In other words, you're destroying the God-given likeness of God in us as His creation. Because God-honoring industriousness is stamped on our being to be who are created in God's own image. Genesis 1.31, God saw all He had made and was very good. It was very good. God was pleased with His handiwork. He was pleased with the fruit of His labor. God, as the landlord of creation, took delight in His ownership of the created universe. Please listen to me carefully. The social engineers, with their social gospel, in a desire to be liked by the prevailing culture, they're dishonoring God and the Word of God. Just to inflate their egos, they want to appear to this fallen culture as though they are more compassionate than God. And yet, God is the one who created the natural order, and that natural order says, reward creativity and punish laziness. Listen to me. Everyone gets a trophy. Is Marxist ideology not biblical Christianity? It is the height of folly to try to spin God's natural order and invert God's system of prosperity and fulfillment. Here's a summary of a biblical view of work. Listen carefully. I'm going to give you a summary. I always like to give a summary because I know some precious 10, and 11, and 12-year-old taking notes, and I, I, I always like to get back and give a little summaries. Here's the the truly biblical view of work. Whether you are an employer or an employee, you must take ownership of your work. Did you get that? You must take ownership of your work. Listen to what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for whom? The Lord. <laughs> Not your human boss. To the Lord. You're ultimately working for the real boss <laughs> who sees you 24-7. 24-7, he's watching you. And when you understand this, you will work with absolute integrity and honesty. You will not shortcut because you are working 
for yourself and first and then for the Lord. Because in the long run, God is the one who truly rewards you. God is the one who truly can reward you and uh, faithfully reward you and reward your diligent faithfulness. When you take ownership in your work, whatever it may be, whether in the factory floor, in the office, whatever you are, when you take ownership, when you see your work from God's perspective, then and only then you receive satisfaction. You receive fulfillment. You receive contentment. And beloved, satisfaction, contentment is all gift of God. Gift of God. And that's also why if when your earthly boss, your human boss, unfairly treats you, and I know, listen, I understand human nature. You could get mistreated by your earthly boss. Some of those bosses are jerks. I'm a boss, I know that. (laughs) (laughs) But when you do get unfairly treated, you can be at peace. You can be at peace because your real boss sees everything. He knows everything. And he is the only one who can reward you accordingly. Paul could confidently say, Verse 10, 3.10, 2 Thessalonians. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. <laughs> I know. I, just, I, I thought about this a hundred times during the week, really. It's just amazing. I, I know. I, I just know that somebody's going to say, Michael, this is harsh. <laughs> this is unloving. I said the emotional basket case culture, that's, that operates on feelings. <laughs> Harsh. They're more kind than God. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> but, but listen, this is truly the height of love. It is the height of love. Sometimes the worst thing you can do for some people is to shower them with compassion, is to meet all of their needs, is to solve all of their problems. Why? Because you are replacing God and their dependence on God. Let me hasten to say, this does not mean, it does not mean, I want you to not miss this, don't miss this, (laughs) it does not mean that there are not people who have genuine needs. I want to keep emphasizing this because I don't want anybody to walk outside and say, Michael hates the poor. Huh? <laughs> Listen, I heard worse, but I, the reason in my old age I'm emphasizing things because I've heard it all. It does not mean that there are people who are genuinely needy. There are genuine needs. At that point, we the believers, the church of Jesus Christ, are commanded, it's not suggested to us, we are commanded to help those who are in real need. As I mentioned earlier, 35 years, 20% of every dollar comes to the church, goes to ministry that is dedicated, that are dedicated to meeting genuine, real needs. 
In the church of Thessalonica, obviously, there were some who were lazy and unproductive, some who were freeloading on the hardworking people. And the believers in that church were feeding these freeloaders. <laughs> sadly, uh, I would say very sadly, in our culture, the government takes care of that. Make no mistake about it. Listen to me. Listen to me. I believe in governments. I believe God sets governments. I pray. You, you, you heard Eric. Every Sunday we pray for our leaders. But by nature, governments, that's all governments, all governments, without exception. And I'm not, you know, distinguishing between any government, all governments. Love to replace God and the church. All governments. Ask yourself the question, why the system failed 20 trillion dollars later since the day Johnson said, President Johnson said, the great society. 20 trillion dollars have been spent. We're still failing. Because governments, all governments, do not love people. Governments can't love. Governments are an institution. It's hard and harsh. Governments are set by God to exercise justice. Governments love to control people. Governments love to make people dependent on them. <laughs> Governments are not interested in people having dignity or self-respect or self-esteem. That's not their interest. Ah, but the church of Jesus Christ does. The believers do. And we want to help people to have dignity and to have self-worth and self-respect and self-esteem. Beloved, listen to me. The goal of any church discipline should be repentance and redemption, period. And that is why Paul uses the power of example. He said, verses 7 and 8, he said, when I was with you, I wasn't idle, I had to work. And you saw how I lived. The example of Christians is very important. Listen, I cannot preach to my kids growing up at the time, you know, work, good work ethics when I, I'm lazing off and putting my feet up and not working. I can tell you as my beloved congregation, this is what the Word of God said, and I'm taking it easy. As a matter of fact, last, last month we were in England, I had a bunch of interviews preparing for the 20th anniversary celebration in ministry to the UK. <clears throat> and one reporter, I mean, she was, after she did all this usual stuff and beating on me, and then she said, wait a minute, I'm looking at your age here, and what are you doing setting up all these goals for the, she said, people in your age should be putting their feet up. I said, huh? I, I, I'm going to go to heaven running. I'm going to <laughs> Beloved, I believe with all my heart that we can witness with our lives as much as we witness with our words. Let me repeat what I said earlier. <laughs> you'll understand. Some of you will understand why I'm repeating. The absolute necessity of helping the true needy. Please, if you got there, say Amen. Tell to your neighbor, I said, did he get it? 
I don't want anyone to walk out of here misunderstanding me. I don't know anyone to think that I am preaching against helping those poor and needy, genuinely needy, those who cannot physically work, the widows and the orphans who are commanded, those who are mentally and physically disabled, etc., etc., etc. As a matter of fact, the welfare system, and you know how they say hell is, is, is built with well intentions? They do well intentioned. The welfare system started and was created by the government for that purpose. In fact, it was supposed to be a safety net for the true needy, not a hammock for the true lazy. (laughs) In the last message, we saw how the apostles' burden for the church was stability. Remember that? Stability. It's always been the burden of the Apostle Paul, and you see it in all his writings. Stability and harmony in the church was very important to the Apostle Paul. And that is why he writes here, verses 11 and 12, he says, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. Disruptive. They are not busy working, but busy bodies. Such people we command, not suggest, (laughs) command, and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. I love the contrast. The the English translators who did this did a fabulous job because I love the contrast between the busy and the busybodies. (laughs) I love that. People who are busy working, they do not have time to be disruptive and divisive in the body of Christ. Lazy people seem to have all the time in the world (laughs) to go around sowing discord, Uh, uh, spreading gossips and making nuisance of themselves. And that, my beloved friends, causes destabilization in the church. Another way that these idle folks bring dishonor to the church of Jesus Christ is that they make it difficult for the church to distinguish between the truly needy and the one who are not. We are called, this might be the fourth time I've said this, okay, We are called to give with generosity to those who cannot care for themselves. One thing more before I close. Another way of creating disharmony in the church is when a hardworking person sacrificially gives and sees us not going to the genuinely needy, that person, and, and is going to some people who are not really in, uh, who are lazy, that person becomes jaded and cynical, and that's a problem. Found that the Apostle Paul uses a terminology here that we have completely disavowed in our modern-day culture. I want you to, this is the last brain twister before I conclude with prayer, okay? You with me? He, 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 he gives a big word here that our culture, our generation, I mean, just absolutely make you explode. That's because we're confused. We, we are very confused regarding the concept of shame. The word shame is mentioned here deliberately by the apostle. Verse 14. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. 
I can wait a minute here and just see how you're reacting. But God is my witness. I want to explain this to you in a way that you must understand it. What we have done, because we don't like that word, we threw the baby with the bathwater and made the word to be bad. But you know what? Really, there is a good reason why it's negative. There's a good reason why this word is a negative word, and I'm going to tell you why. Because, and you've got to hear me right on this one. It is tragic. It is tragic when children or even adults become emotionally paralyzed due to what I call toxic shame. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Especially shame that they do not deserve. Especially shame that was afflicted, inflicted on them by abusers. Let me give you a personal opinion. That wasn't really in my note, but I've got to tell you this. Um, I think those who abuse children should face the death penalty. No appeals, no appeals. Do it like they do it in Singapore. (laughs) But that was my soapbox, and I'm going to come down now into the Word of God. (laughs) But having the capacity to feel shame when we sin, when we commit sin, having the capacity to feel shame, even when it's between you and the Lord, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. There are times when I'm even alone when I, I blurt something if I'm watching something and, and, and I'll say, I'll, I'll stop. I said, Lord, I'm so embarrassed. I even come out of my mouth. And if I say it in front of people, I immediately <laughs> tell them that and I repent because I'm ashamed that I would even allow my mind and words come out of my, my, my mouth like that. But if it leads to repentance, it's a healthy shame not toxic shame. When Adam and Eve sinned, what, they realized that they were naked when they tried to they cover up their sin. It didn't work. Sin only has one cure, and that is confession and repentance. One cure to sin, all sin. As a rebellious teenager, from a well-known godly family in town. I heard repeatedly, do not bring shame to your family's good name. Thank God it worked with me. For I did not want to bring shame to my family's good name. Let me clarify one more time. A healthy capacity for personal shame that leads to repentance is wonderful. But ultimately, our motives, listen to me, I'm about to close, our motive must always, 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 how many times? Always. Be done in love. Must always be done in love. Verse 15, 
You do not regard these as enemies, but warned him as a brother. Love, genuine love, real love, biblical love, has to be our ultimate motive. It has to be our ultimate motive. Nothing else. In, six, in Galatians 6.1, Paul said, if someone who's caught in sin, that person is to be restored gently. Sadly, there are many legalistic churches, of which I know some, who would shoot their woundeds, and they shoot their woundeds instead of restoring them gently. That shooting of our woundeds, as I said, will happen in many a church, and I pray those pastors, and I hear hundreds and thousands of pastors watching us around the world, that needs to stop. It is loving restoration that we must, must, must long for and practice. Why? Because just as we rejoice in the fact that our Heavenly Father forgave us all our sins, when we repent, when we repent. Now, if a person does not repent and is not repentant, it's a whole different ballgame. We want them to rejoice when we forgive them, just as we rejoice in our own forgiveness when we repent. Will you just, as we go to prayer, say, Lord, speak to me. And we're going to take a few moments in silence and let, let the Holy Spirit do the rest of His work, because He can do that on an individual basis. And take a moment of silence and just say, Holy Spirit, apply this to my life. Help me. Help me to understand it so I can share it with others. Help me to apply it in my life. Help me to apply it to others in my family and my life. Father, we thank you. We praise you.